How many of you in this room have ever heard of a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Okay, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for those who don't know, um, was a Christian pastor theologian uh, from Germany during World War II. And he um, was an amazing, amazing man. Um, when World War II broke out, he was actually teaching at a seminary in um, New York. And uh, the, the, the people that were there at the time said, hey, you know, you can stay here. You don't have to go back to Germany. And he said, you know, um, I feel I have to go back because if I don't identify with them now, then I'll have nothing to say with them at the end of the war. So he decided to go back, and he ended up speaking out against Hitler and becoming the leader of what was known as the Confessing Church. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but in Germany there was an established state church. It's a little bit different here um, because we don't have a state church. But in Germany they had a state church at the time, and many of these churches had been capitulating and compromising with the, the, the greater culture to the point that, that the uh, Nazis ended up taking over many of the churches and enforcing what was known as positive Christianity. And it was a Christianity that denied the Jewish origins of the Bible, the Jewish origins of Jesus, and put in its place this Aryan kind of theology that emphasized the superiority of the Aryan race. They denied that Jesus Christ was the only means of salvation and developed a doctrine based on that of the new revelation of the Fuhrer, the Hitler. To the point where people would be bringing their babies, which would traditionally be done in Lutheran churches, um, and be baptized uh, in their you know, little baptistries, but they would be dedicating and baptizing their babies in the name of Hitler. This is how bad it got during World War II. And the church had been compromised greatly. Um, it's, it, it had totally engaged in the world, even though they were advocating a positive Christianity. Now, up against this movement rose many different leaders who became the heads or leaders of a movement called the Confessing Church. And what they meant by that is that we are confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe in the Bible. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. And they were speaking out against Nazism in the, in the midst of Germany during World War II. And, and Bonhoeffer, as he was leading this movement, he, a group of Christians gathered around him. And he began teaching many of these young men what it meant to be pastors. And he, he, he's very famous for writing certain books in this period of time. One you might have heard of. It's called uh, Nachtfolge. Uh, you don't know it by the German title of it, but it's called The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote another book called Ethics and another one um, that's very famous called Life Together. And, he, and what he, he does is he captures the essence of what it means to be Christ's body in the midst of a sinful world. How we are to behave because we see churches compromising around us. We see people casting the word of God aside, and yet we're still to live in the midst of the society as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And he tries to capture the essence of going to Scripture and drawing out what it means to be a true follower of Jesus in this sinful world. And he called it Life Together. I find it a very appropriate title. And I think that Bonhoeffer didn't capture anything new. He was reiterating something that had been captured um, a long time ago and basically was systematizing it and putting it in contemporary language. But I believe that the Apostle Paul captured the essence of what it meant to be a Christian early on. And it was showing that we are 
not to be isolated, solitary believers, but he puts us in the midst of a body and he gives us instructions on how we are to live. Today, we're going to delve into this scripture. We're going to see what God has for us and see what this community is to look like, as well as what we, behaviors we are to avoid, but also virtues that we are to embrace. So I would encourage you to listen in, and, and, and we should all ask ourselves the question, am I living, this community, living with others the way that God wants me and desires me to be? What's keeping me from that? What are, what are the excuses in my heart that come up when this thought invades my mind that it, it causes me fear and perhaps angst? And what's keeping me from that? And keeping me a solitary believer rather than being with the very people of God. So let's ask for God's blessing as we delve into this subject. Father, we need your wisdom. We need your truth. We need your grace. We need you to show us how we are to live this life together. Just as Bonhoeffer wrote so many years ago, and Paul wrote thousands of years ago. Lord, use us. Open our eyes to this truth. That we might apply it and grow in our joy of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we start off in verse 12. And the Apostle Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, he says, put on. He's giving a command. He's telling you to get dressed. But before he tells you what to put on, he wants to identify who you are. This is why you're putting on these clothes. I want to show you why you need to be putting on these behaviors, these virtues. And it's because you're a new person. You've got a new wardrobe. And because you're a new person, you've been brought into the people of God. You are a brand new person. Did you know that? When you come, came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you became a new person, and we became a new people. That's the first thing I want you to write down. In Christ, we have become new people. We are not what we were. Do you know the Bible says that in Christ we are a new creation? You're brand new. You are a new individual. You have been changed. You have been transformed. The old has passed away. The new is gone. And because you are a new person, this is how you are to conduct and live your life. Because you are a new person, you need to understand who you really are. You need to enter into this identity to discover who you are. And I see people do this. Um, and maybe you've done this too. Have you ever gone and tried to research your name or your family history, perhaps your genealogy, where you came from, who your ancestors were, your background? I, I think some have done that. I know people that have come from more, uh, who have been adopted, have a harder time or figuring out who am I and what am I doing. And we see that we, when we are adopted into a new family, their history becomes your history. And, it, and, and you can learn more about them. And I remember as a young man, I was trying to figure out where did my name come from? I want to understand my name, and, and, and my name is, you know, is Travis, and it means uh, beautiful pastor. Um, no, it actually means toll taker. It's not that fun. Toll taker at a crossroads, that's what it means. And Fleming is my last name, and it means man from Flanders, uh, which is Belgium. And actually, I did some research and found out that my family migrated to Ireland. The Belgium, what did they do? I mean, I, I, I'm, like, I look at Belgium, and I'm like, Belgium doesn't seem as fun for me. 
Uh, but Ireland sounds cool. I like the accent. So my family migrated to Ireland in the 12th century. It's actually a true story. And they migrated over here in the 18th century. And I'm learning my, my family history, and I learned that actually I have a lot of pastors in my history. My first descendant that was born in America was a guy named James, actually Reverend James Lightfoot Fleming in the 1760s. Isn't that really amazing? I didn't know any of that until I started researching it. I found out that I have a pastor in my history, and there are actually several. This is God carrying that on through the ages. But I want to find out who I am, where I came from. And here he's saying that you have a history. You have been chosen. You were chosen. Now the word there is electos. It means chosen, elect. It means God picked you. God selected you. He didn't pass you over. Do you remember playing in elementary school and they would pick teams? Do you remember that? What was one of the hardest things? You didn't get picked. <laughs> You're like, it's like, eh, I'll pick you. God didn't do that. God picked you to be on his team. You are elected, chosen since the foundation of the world. You are part of his electos, elect his people. You have been elected. You have been picked. Notice that we are also holy. He says, you are chosen Holy. The word means set apart. It means God declared us righteous in his sight because Jesus' righteous deeds have been imputed to your other account. In other words, you have not only been picked, but you've been purified. Do you know that? When God sees you, he doesn't see all the sins that you've done. If you have Christ, he sees his son, period. He doesn't see the sin you did last week or the sin you're going to do in the future. If you have Jesus Christ, his death covered your sins past, present, and future. And he now made you holy. You are positionally holy. Now you're to grow in your progressive holiness to to look more like him. And the more that you spend time with him, the more that you will begin to look like him. I I don't know if you've ever seen those uh, stuff that comes up on the internet so often where they show mugshots of people that are meth users. Have you ever seen this? And it shows what happens over time where they, they started off and you see how they continue to use meth and how they're transformed just negatively and, and they become a shell of themselves. And you can see this woman who is this beauty who just becomes this kind of, forgive the term, hag. It's just really scary on how it transitions their face and ages them and makes them, it is this evil. is like overcoming them. And it's, that's the negative way. See, when we're followers of Christ, we may not realize we're becoming more like Christ, but if we're to look at our spiritual life and our walk with the Lord over time and take pictures of it, you'd see us becoming looking more like Jesus. Instead of from being negative, you would be made positive. And you're looking more and more like your Savior the more that you spend time in His presence. So we are, we are picked, we are uh, purified, and notice also that we are beloved. Beloved, and, and that what that word is in Greek is agapameno. Agapameno, which it has at its root word agape, which is God's word of unconditional love. In other words, you, God set his love on you. He decided to love you which means that you are prized. You are prized. Yesterday, I, I uh, came up from my basement, and uh, I'm a sentimental guy, especially when it comes to my wife. And I, just, and I mentioned that I've stared at her in the past, and, and she, you know, she says that's weird too. But um, I, I came up last night, and I said, you know, I feel like I'm in a movie. 
And you see in this movie where a guy, uh, he, you know, his, his wife dies and he grows old. And then something happens where he gets to go, he misses her so much. And he gets to go back in time and see her. And he just keeps staring at her because he's amazed at who she is. Because, uh, you know, he, he knew what it was like to be without it. I feel like that every time I look at my wife. Is that she's so prized to me. I'm still in disbelief that she married me, as is my family and hers. But I prize her. And I think that's how God does with us. You know, he prizes us. He loves us. He lavishes us with his love. He's in, he's in love with you. He loves you. He's fashioned you. He made you for himself, and he loves you in ways beyond what we can experience in an earthly love. He loves us infinitely more than that. He loves you and lavished his love on you so much that he would give his son to die for you. So we've been picked, we've been purified, and we've been prized. We are brand new people. But now, we see that there's something else. As God's children, we are now to have, because we are these new people, we need to have these new practices in our life. We have to have new practices. If we're going to, we're God's people, I got to act like God's people. You know, it's like the, the story of uh, the Queen of England's daughter, the princess, was uh, in a public meeting and she was sitting rather awkwardly and slouched over and, and was causing coming to be quite an embarrassment when the queen leaned over to her, to her and said, have you forgotten who you are? Behave like it. We have to understand that we're children of the king and we need to have practices that are commensurate with that. Now these practices, look at verse 12. We can see then, he's commanding us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now we before we can just have these characteristics and these virtues prevalent in our life, we have to understand that it, we have to change, be changed from the inside out, which means that God has to get a hold of our heart, which means he transforms our character, transforms our character. See, we're now to have new practices, but these practices are truly rooted in our character. And then from that character is then seen and exhibited in our conduct, in our conduct I want you to look through these terms with me. Notice the first one, compassionate heart. It literally means compassion from the gut. The heart is a, is a term that is used to, uh, or this word, splunkna. And it literally means from the gut, from the inside organs. It means the, the liver, the, 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 in, uh, the intestines, everything right in here. It's the depth of one's emotion. It's the seat of one's understanding. And we're to have compassion. We're to feel for other people. We need to help other people. And it, it literally means that we care for people and it's seen in how we treat others. We're to care for others, their needs, their families, their trials, to help them through their trials and their tribulations. We're to hurt for them, to feel for them in the depth of our being. And we need to make sure that we have kindness. It's expressed in attitude and deed, the friendly and helpful spirit which seeks to meet the needs of others through kind deeds. That we're to be ready to help other people. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, is a guy named Tom Barron. I don't know how many of you know Tom. 
But Tom uh, was the pastor of Central Bible Church just down the street. Now he's, he's out of the pastoral ministry, but he's still actively engaged in ministry, working with refugees. And he is a, a real fun guy to, to be around. And he's, he's uh, just really likable. And uh, I've enjoyed getting to know Tom. He lives just a, um, around the corner of the block. And he's always helpful. He's like, do you need my truck? Do you need anything? Can I help you with anything? He's just this kind person. And he truly exhibits to me uh, what it means to be kind, to be ready to help others, to offer themselves to help other people. That's what we need to be doing, to be kind. And next, we're also to have humility. And it refers to loneliness and thinking of oneself. Now, there was a story of once about a pastor who was going for a job at a church, and they asked him the question, are you humble? Now, how do you answer that question? And they said, are you humble? And he's like, well... And they're like, are you humble? And he's like, well, I... I uh, they're like, are you humble? Yes, I'm humble. Kind of defeats the purpose. Now, I think that we have a misunderstanding, though, of what humility is. When we think of humility, we don't walk around going, I'm the worst person in the world. That's not what humility is. Humility means thinking accurately and estimating oneself. It means understanding one's strengths and one's weaknesses. It doesn't mean saying that I'm the worst person in the world, you're so much better. That's not what humility is. Humility is saying, I'm good at this, but I'm not really good at this. Can you help me? That's humility. So we need to understand that we're to be humble with one another, not trying to make ourselves looking better than we really are. Now, notice also this fourth characteristic is meekness. Now, the word indicates an obedient submissiveness to God and his will with unwavering faith and enduring patience, displaying itself in a gentle attitude and kind acts toward others. And this often in the face of opposition. It is the restrained and obedient powers of the personality brought into subjection and submission to God's will by the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not asserting one's raw power or influential abilities. It's not about one who seeks to change the stars, but one who, in the face of hostility, opposition, or life crisis, or difficulty, agrees to obey God rather than to get out of the situation. Now, did you get that? It means when difficulty and opposition comes, that you deal with it and submit to God in the midst of it, rather trying to extricate yourself from it. Now, we all alike don't enjoy going through opposition or difficulty or conflict, and some of us would rather flee from that. But here it's saying, no, you need to submit to what God is wanting to do in the midst of that. And I'll tell you, this is something that we lack in our churches today. Because we can easily leave so fast. If our needs aren't getting met, if someone offends us, we just leave. And that's just what the text is saying is that's not how it's supposed to be. That we're to work with one another. We're to to bear up and submit to God and work through these issues. We need to see through them. And many times we give up because we can't see through them. I'm reminded of the story of Florence Chadwick. I don't know if you've ever heard of Florence Chadwick, but she was a world-class swimmer. She'd already been successful in swimming and crossing the English Channel, and now she wanted to take on the 26-mile trek from Catalina Island, California, 
to the California mainland as no woman had ever done before her. So Florence went into the Pacific with a number of boats surrounding her as she made the trip. She swam. Hour after hour, she swam. It was a very foggy night when she tried to do it. And as the darkness set in, she could barely see her hand in front of her face um, as she stroked. And after swimming 15 hours and 55 minutes, she waved to the boats and said, I can't go on any further. I quit. They hoisted her out of the water and they asked her, why, why can't you keep going? She said, because I can't see. The fog is just too thick. And after getting on the boat, she discovered that she was only one half mile from the coast of California. All that hard work, and she was ever so close, but she didn't quite make it. Now, she decided to try again two months later. She got in the water. It looked bright and sunny, but about after 12 hours, the fog again set in once more. This time, the fog was worse than it was the first time. Again, she couldn't see, but this time she kept swimming, even though she couldn't see. She kept going. This time, she not only swam from Catalina Island to the coast, but she swam there and beat the world record by two and a half hours. When she arrived at the California coastline, she was interviewed and asked, last time you tried this, you quit. How did you make it this time? She said, this time, it was easy because I kept a mental picture of the California coastline in my mind. As long as I didn't lose sight of where I was going, I could handle the trip getting there. Now see, what that means is, is for the believer in Christ that we have to understand that God has a reason for our suffering. God has a reason of bringing this trouble this trial, or this tribulation into our life. We may not see it, but we have to believe by faith that God is going to use this situation in our life to reach other people, to help them, to comfort others in their affliction, to point other people to Christ, to glorify Christ in the midst of it. As we go through these difficulties, God has a reason for it. And we see that it's seen then in our, this, this new life is seen in our Conduct. Now, this last point within here, he says we're to have patience. Now, the word there is macrothumia, and it means long-suffering, which is giving control over to another. We're to be patient with people. How patient are you? We're not very patient today. We're very not patient with other people. We want everything now. But we have to be careful the way that we deal with others is how others are going to deal with us. And if we're to want people to be patient with us, we need to be patient with others. And that means literally ceding control over to, like a nurse waiting on a patient. She has to wait on that patient to understand that patient, understand that that patient is not going to recover in his or her timetable. So it's handing it over to them. Now, we're also to be, and this is the hardest one right here, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Now, the word bearing is in a present tense and means to endure, to bear with, to put up with someone. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had to put up with someone in church? Have you ever had to deal with someone's personality that was abrasive or someone that offended you? Have you had to put up with someone in your life? If you haven't, that means you're that person. But we have to make sure that we bear, bear 
up with one another. We bear with one another. It's in, and notice in the present tense. It's not just a one-time thing. It's doing it all the time. We're going to offend each other. Personalities are going to grate on each other. The way that we do things is going to differ from one another. But it's learning to work through those things. It's to be a continual thing. This is where I think a lot of churches, we really miss the point. We're good with people as long as everybody is happy and our needs are being met. But someone says something to us that hurts our feelings and we're out the door faster than a Cubs fan at a White Sox convention. The text says that we are to endure, bear with, to put up with people. Why? We're going to offend and hurt one another. But we have to look past it, share our hurts, and work through them even if others don't agree with our assessment. And sometimes it may mean agreeing to disagree. But we're to bear with one another. And one of the greatest testimonies we have for evangelism in the world is our unity with other believers. And when we let things like this get to us, and I'm talking about non-doctrinal and non-moral things, we dim the light of Christ. We need to bear with one another, and when necessary, we forgive them if they hurt us. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against Another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must forgive. Now, it's interesting. The words forgiving each other are in the present tense as well. And it means to be gracious, to forgive. It means canceling the debt. And many times we are good at, and I don't know if you heard this growing up, but I'll forgive, but I don't forget. And that's, do you think God does that with us? God says, you know what, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not going to forget what you did and how you sinned against me. Now, I'm not saying that, that we don't hold people accountable for actions. I'm not saying that. Because sometimes we can say we forgive, and then you let the person just run and do whatever. When you know that there's a sinful behavior in place, you, you love says to hold them accountable, not just to let them go. There's confusion there in many Christian circles. But here, we're to, to forgive and we, and that means giving over, not willing to hold it against them any longer. Now, many of us say that we forgive each other, but the reality is, is we still continue to hold a grudge. I was talking to a man about his marriage, and uh, marriage is struggling. And he said, uh, they've been married for almost 30 years. He said, early in our marriage, I got angry and I hit her. And it was wrong. And I've asked for forgiveness, and I've tried to show by my conduct, and I believe he has, that he was genuinely repentant. She has never, ever let him forget that. She brings it up in conflict and in actions. She's used it as an excuse to withdraw intimacy. You hit me. You don't deserve this. It was once. And I'm not, I'm not justifying what he did. That's deplorable. A man should never hit his, a, a woman, period. Okay? That should not happen. But how should we respond to a, con- a couple such as this? Is there forgiveness or is there not? She said, this is a Christian woman. She says, I've forgiven him, but I'm going to use it against him at every moment. And he is broken. He's been carrying this around for 30-some years in shame. There's no freedom. He's in this perpetual prison. And see, oftentimes, though, when we refuse to forgive someone and we put them in these prison in our minds that we've created, the reality often is, now in this man it was different, but the reality is, is the person that really is there is us. We're the ones that are continually brooding, holding on. God says, let it go. Give it over to me. Because I have forgiven you. You are now to forgive other people. I like how C.S. Lewis described it. He put it this way. 
To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. See, you can't hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness without understanding that you don't deserve forgiveness. You and I don't deserve it. That person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Let me give you a newsflash. You don't deserve that either. None of us do. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Or perhaps this way, Luke chapter 6, verse 36 through 38. It's page 863 if you have uh, your pew Bible or the large print, it's 1097. But Jesus says this. He puts it a little bit more bluntly. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Meaning that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Think about that. Some, I, I like how Thomas Fuller, who was a British pastor during the 17th century, he said this, He that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. For every man has need to be forgiven. Meaning that if you refuse to forgive others, you are burning the bridge. You are, you, are, you are destroying the very bridge that you have to cross to get to God. Because God's forgiveness is only given to us truly and experientially when we are willing to forgive other people. We have to remember that. Now let's look back at our text. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. This is, this is the cherry on top. This puts it all together. He says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We're to love one another. It's our love for each other that keeps us connected. Keeps us connected. See, we're to have new practices. They're rooted in our character. It's seen in our conduct. But it's our love that keeps us connected to one another. And love is powerful. I think I shared this some time ago. I remember being in a college speech class, and uh, one young man got up, and he, 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 his subject, he was using fear to influence people. And the teacher said, um, fear is the most powerful emotion there is. And, and one young man responded and says, Prof, I have to disagree with you. I don't think fear is the most powerful emotion there is. And the, and the, the teacher said, what is that? Love. Because, like, for example, fear might motivate me to, like, if I see my child in the, in the street and the car's coming, fear might motivate, but it's also love for that child that wants me to go and stand in the face of that situation. See, love comes over fear. And the Bible talks about how powerful love is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 3, it's on page 959. And, and here, here's, we, we can see something uh, very interesting. Paul draws out and he looks at all of the acts that we can do and we can use as justification in our lives to show our walk with God. But he rebukes that. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have these amazing charismatic experiences and I do this great spiritual thing, but if I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just drawing attention to myself. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I mean, I, I, can, I can see the future and I understand all the insights of Scripture and I can explain these great mysteries of the universe according to the Word of God. God has opened them to me, but I have not love. Love, then it means nothing. He says, even if I have all faith, I have faith that I can move a mountain but have not love. I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, I become a complete pauper. I give all my money to the poor. And if I have, and I I could even deliver up my body to the flames. I could die for the name of Christ. I could be a martyr, but I don't have love. It's nothing. See, love is powerful. That's why Paul says, and above all these, put on love. That's what connects us. That's what binds us. It's the mortar that keeps the bricks of the church together. Notice it binds everything together in perfect harmony. It means perfection, complete maturity. Love in action. Now, we are new people. We have new practices. And we're to be characterized by a new peace. Peace. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. Now, uh, the word let in Greek is a present imperative. Now, it's interesting here that it's a present imperative active, meaning it's in the present tense. We're to be doing it all the time. Active means we are the one doing it, not being done to us. It's imperative. It's a command. But what's very fascinating about it, it's in a singular form. Now, the other ones are all plurals. It's interesting. In this text, all the other verbs, the, the things that we see here are in like a, a, either uh, they're in a plural for the whole body. But here he's saying you as an individual. It's aiming specifically at people. He's saying you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now, the word rule here is very fascinating. It's the idea of being a referee. And the idea of being in an athletic context and saying if this is in or this is out. You have the ability to judge, discern. And he's saying then that you have the ability, and I'm commanding you to do it, is to cultivate and choose peace in that moment of crisis. Did you know that? You have the ability to choose. He's saying let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. There, this peace must be chosen. This peace must be chosen. It doesn't just come to you. See, it's why it's saying it's active. It's a present active. See, if it would be passive, meaning that God was give you that peace. Here he's saying, you have the ability, that peace is available to you. That's what Jesus says, my, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give. It's the understanding of him, him has it available. Are you going to pick it up and live in it? And it's one you have to choose all the time. That's why it's in the present tense. It means continual action. This peace must be chosen. Chosen. You have to choose to enter into it. Now, this peace, interestingly, is not available to everyone, however, but it's only for those in the church. It's only for those in the church. See, notice the next part of that same verse. To which indeed you were called in one body. One body. The idea is you've been brought into a body. Now, if you also notice and go back over this text, you'll see one another, love one another, forgive, with one, forgive one another, bear with one another. The idea is being together, connected as a body. There is no such thing as being a solitary Christian, an isolated believer. When Christ died, he died to put you into a body. 
not so that you wouldn't have interactions with people. Life is messy. And he's saying, I'm putting you into this body. Now, I, I was talking to a, a man a while back who was struggling in his, his walk with the Lord, and he'd left his church, and, and I said, how are you doing spiritually? What's going on? He goes, I'm, I'm having a great time right now. I just, I'm not joining any church. I'm not going to church. You know, I'm still trying to figure out this church thing, and I'm not sure if it's for me. Well, you say you're a Christian, and the Bible says that you are to be with one another. He's like, well, I'm getting community in other ways. I, you might get some of it, but it's like you're just eating fast food. You're just snacking. Like my, my kids graze. Like my, my five-year-old son hates eating. And he just likes to snack and graze and play. And, I, and some people, I think, some people are like that spiritually. I'll take a little of Jesus, and I'll get enough just so I can go out and do this again. And I'll come back when I'm hungry, but I don't want to sit down with everybody else at the table and really have communion. I mean, when he's at the table, it's like, painful to watch this kid. He's moving around. He's stretching. He moves his food, takes a drink. He wants to talk to everybody. I'm like, sit and eat your food or I will kill you. So I feel like with my son, and he's just, he's full of life. And then, and then he gets done and everybody leaves the table and he's like, I'm done. No, you're not. You have to stay here and finish your food. No, I don't want to. I want to play. Well, you need to eat your food. That's all there is. Uh, and he starts to cry. It's like, I'm telling you how the, the family rules are. We're to be together. You can't just snack anytime you want. Same for us spiritually. You can't just snack whenever you want. You need to eat with God's people. We need to be together. It's only for those in the church. That's why he says, I put you in one body. I called you into one body. You were called to this body. The church is not optional. It's not optional. It's essential. It's not just for the super spiritual, but for the screwed up. But for those who will bear the name of Christ, we're called to be in a body of believers. Unbelievers can't have it, and those who erroneously say they are believers who won't connect with a body can't have it either. Now, this peace is to be regardless of circumstance. Regardless of circumstance. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's, and again, it's present tense. You're always doing it, no matter what the circumstance. Stance is, no matter what situation you're to have, you need to choose the peace of Christ, knowing that he is victorious over the world, that he's not going to give you anything that's beyond your ability to bear, that he will give you the grace to bear up in the midst of that situation. No matter what it is, he will give it. He has promised to give it to you. He's promised to give it to you. And he's saying it's available for you to take it, to use it in that time of need, to let that peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now, let's look, look at verse 16 with me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, and all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, will thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, again, this is in the imperative. We're to have the word dwell in us, and we are, and what we are to do with it. It's meant to help aid. He's saying, I want the word of God to dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, and all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns. In other words, I want you to use this to praise God. See, we have, a, we have this praise that we're to have now in our lives. We're to be characterized by praise, by joy in our hearts and in our lives. He's saying that we are to have this peace, characterized by a new peace, but also characterized by praise. 
Now, this praise is rooted in the Scriptures. It's rooted in the Scriptures. That's why he says, let the Word of Christ, let the Bible, let the words of God abide in you. That's what Jesus said. Unless you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's understanding of God's Word coming into the depth of our being, becoming part of who we are. It influences us. It challenges us. It directs our minds. As we think in our hearts, so are we. And when we're thinking in the Word of God, our minds and our character is being molded by the truth of who God is. See, this praise is rooted and directed by the Scriptures. It's rooted in the Scriptures. And it's to dwell in us richly, abundantly, lavishly. And how do we get the Word of God to dwell in us richly? By memorizing it, by meditating on it. Not just reading through it in the one-minute Bible app. I mean, if that's all you can get at that moment, that's fine, but you can't live there. You have to sit, take and set apart time. And I know that's the hardest thing in the world. I, I look at my, my wife, and uh, from, the, from the time she wakes up in the morning, it's kids, 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 kids. It's hard to get that time and find that time, to steal that time. But we do. We must do it. We must make it a priority in our lives. We must make sure that we are having it dwell in us richly. I've shared this story before. There's the, the wicker, back, wicker basket story. It's a story of an old man who lived on a farm in the mountains of eastern Kentucky with his young grandson. And each morning, Grandpa was up early sitting at the kitchen table reading from his old worn-out Bible. And his grandson who wanted to be just like him, tried to imitate him in any way he could. And one day, he, the grandson asked, Papa, I tried to read the Bible just like you, but I don't understand it. And what I do understand, I forget as soon as I close the book. What good does the, reading the Bible do? The grandfather quietly turned from putting coal in the stove and said, Take this old wicker coal basket down to the river and bring back a basket of water. The boy did as he was told, even though all the water leaked out before he could bring back a basket of water. The boy did, and uh, the grandfather laughed when he saw him, and he said, you'll have to move a little faster next time. And he sent him back to the river with the basket to try again. The little boy did. He made his way down there. He did as he was told. This time he ran faster, but again the old wicker basket was empty before he returned home. Out of breath, he told his grandfather that it was impossible to carry water in a basket. And he went to get a bucket instead. And the old man said, I don't want a bucket of water. I want a basket of water. You can do this. You're just not trying hard enough. And he went out the door to watch the boy try again. At this point, the boy knew it was impossible, but he wanted to show his grandfather that even if he ran as fast as he could, the water would leak out before he got far at all. The boy scooped the water and ran hard, but when he reached his grandfather, the basket was again empty. Out of breath, he said, See, Papa, it's useless. And the grandfather said, So you think it's useless, huh? The old man said, Look at the basket. The boy looked at the basket, and for the first time, he realized that the basket looked different. Instead of a dirty, old, wicker coal basket, it was completely clean. He said, Son, that's what happens when you read the Bible. You may not understand or remember everything, but when you'll read it, it will change you from the inside out. So true. See, the Word does transform everything about us. and In fact, we are to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We're to use the Word of God to teach others what a life lived for God looks like. 
Now, <coughs> my mother is getting ready for, uh, we're going to find out the treatment that she has for pancreatic cancer. She has a two-centimeter tumor on the neck of her pancreas, and they say it's a, she has a 33% chance of living. And as I've thought about this surgery, and I've been reading about the surgery that she's getting ready to do, they have to uh, probably do radiation or chemotherapy to shrink the tumor, and then they go in to cut it out. They want to make sure that they get it well. And I think of how intricate now surgeons are. I mean, it's, it's, it's so amazingly detailed. I mean, I, I, those, kid, those guys who are surgeons must have been really good at operation when they were kids. But they have to be so specific. And I think of the Word of God. It says, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. That, it's, that it separates. And I think of God as a surgeon with the Word of God, removing the cancer of unbelief from our souls. And we're to help. He asks us to participate in that. That's why he says in all wisdom. And that we're to take this blade of the Word of God and speak that truth in other people's life so that cancer might be removed from their souls. Because the Word of God is powerful. It changes us. It's that sharp. And we need to know how to wield it correctly, using wisdom when you are speaking to someone about the Word. And a little common sense doesn't hurt too much either. Because sometimes we can take the Word of God and swing it around and not know that we're abusing people. We need to know how to wield it properly. Which means we need to study it, to know how to use it, to know what it means, and how to apply it to our lives ourselves. Now, doing what it means means letting it penetrate and be seen in our speaking, in our speaking. See, this is rooted uh, in the scriptures, but it's shown in our speaking, in our conversation. That's why he says you're to be teaching one another, admonishing one another, to, be, to, to share, speaking these words of truth into others' lives and letting it guide our tongues. Because the tongue is a powerful thing. We need to make sure that we understand how to speak words of truth. Because, you know, what happens when we fail to have our words under the authority of God's Spirit? Words can damage. I know many of us in this room carry wounds and scars from things that people said to us from years and years ago. Something that hurt us and that molded us for good or for bad. We have to be careful of that. And the Bible talks about that in James chapter 3, verse 5 through 12. It says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. See, we need to bless and not curse, helping them closer, uh, having a closer walk with God. And that is a means of praise. Now notice also the next part in verse 16. Singing psalms, the word there is psalmos. It's the idea of putting the psalms to music. Anglicans do this. They have a tendency to memorize it, put it to music, and they sing the songs, literally psalms, literally as they are. Now, hymn 
uh, is hymnos, and it, it's not, it's just a song of praise. It is a song that is meant to lead people in the praise of Almighty God. Now, when we think of hymns, we have a tendency to read uh, 1950s, 1960s, um, into that, what a, what a hymn really is. But you've got to remember, you're talking about stuff that's going back into the time of the New Testament. Uh, this isn't blessed be the tie that binds or just as I am. Back then it was a lot different. They didn't have the music that we have today. Matter of fact, some of the first orchestration of music isn't happening until the 1100s, really, written down um, with individuals such as Hildegard of Bingen. But we are to be singing, singing psalms and spiritual songs as songs that are talking about the Lord with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, God created us to make music. Singing is powerful. I know that some people don't enjoy singing, but do you know that it's a creation of God? As a matter of fact, it's so important to God that he put it within the temple that God set apart a group of Levites to be perpetually leading and singing praises to the Lord. Did you know that even when, when the Israelites had turned from God, when they had turned back and they were re- reconsecrating the temple, all of the kings who reconsecrated the temple made sure to have singers they would have even double choirs. You see it happening in Nehemiah. You see it happening in Ezra, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, where they're setting apart and they're singing. David was known as the sweet psalmist or even singer of Israel, that we are to sing the praises of the Lord. Matter of fact, one Jew, uh, king of Judah, before the army would go into battle, he had a choir go before him. And it wasn't because they were bad to get the people off their, you know, to scare them. It was to lead in praise and to show that the power of praise that God is going with us because God communicates his presence to us when we're worshiping him. Do you sing to the Lord with all your heart? Are you lifting high your voice? Because he's saying here, I want you to sing. Not, I mean, you're like, well, I can't sing. Make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise. God wants you to sing his praises. And if you think you're too cool for singing, be careful as God thinks he's too cool for you. I'm too cool to sing. Well, God is too cool to have you. Really. God wants us to be singing. It's shown in our singing. He's saying here, I want you to sing. I want you to praise him. Now, I want to finish off the last part of verse 16 and beginning of verse 17. See, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See, God wants us to be sure that we are praising God together, which means dedicating to God and being thankful in each and every situation. Each and every situation. God wants us to be thankful in every situation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. That's on page 988. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, God wills that we be thankful. Look, in verse 16, there's thankfulness in your hearts. At the end of verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We're to be giving thanks and thanking God in each and every situation, to be praising Him in the midst of it, no matter what it is, knowing that it's for our betterment, for His good, for our good and His glory. 
Now, I want to conclude today with a quote by Bonhoeffer. And he, in his book, Life Together, he talked about the power of thanksgiving. He says, in the Christian community, thankfulness is just what it is anywhere else in the Christian life. Only he who gives thanks for the little things receives the big things. We prevent God from giving us the great spiritual gifts he has in store for us because we do not give thanks for daily gifts. We think we dare not be satisfied with the small measure of spiritual knowledge, experience, and love that has been given to us, and that we must constantly be looking forward eagerly for the highest good. Then we deplore the fact that we lack the deep certainty, the strong faith, and the rich experience that God has given to others. And we consider this lament to be pious. We pray for the big things and forget to give thanks for the ordinary, small and yet really not small gifts. How can God entrust great things to one who will not thankfully receive from him the little things? If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is not great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God, that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Christ Jesus. In other words, we need to give thanks for the little things because if we're not giving thanks for the little things and grateful to God and the little things and the blessings we receive, we won't see Him do the great things. And if you're not seeing Him do the great things in your life, it's because He's waiting for you to recognize Him for the little things he's already done for you. Are you thankful for the little things? Do you want to experience the great things? Go back and say, Lord, thank you for this. These little things. See, we should hear the words we should hear, the words of Bonhoeffer and apply them. We need to do life together, giving thanks together, and preparing ourselves for all that God has for us. We are to do life together, loving one another, encouraging one another, bearing with one another, knowing that we are new creatures, new people, with new practices, and that we're to make sure that we are truly loving one another, cultivating this peace, and living lives of praise for His glory and our joy. We're to be known by our joy. Are you joyous? I'm not talking about being happy-go-lucky. I'm trying about a deep coals of fire that shows of your new life with Christ and is exhibited in your daily life and the situations you face. Would he know and be, the, be known by that joy and, and knowing how we preserve this unity that God has for us, that his name might radiate from this place and be famous throughout the world, that people might see him and be drawn to the Savior accordingly. I hope it's that way. I hope we try to do that. And my prayer is for us to continue to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the holy God. You are the God who sent his Son that we may not be condemned, but that we might enter into a life beyond our ability to fathom, that we might experience not just everlasting life, but abundant life in the here and now. We might have a peace that transcends all understanding.
that we might have a new purpose and direction for our lives, that we might have a different way that we go about living life than those around us, because we know that walking by your truth and living by your commands brings us great and abiding joy. Lord, help us not to live this life by ourselves. Help us to join together to partner with other believers, whether it's in a small group, whether it's in a Bible study, whether it's serving alongside one, one, someone else. Lord, we want to be together. And Lord, when we fail and when we quit, when we offend, when we hurt, may we seek forgiveness. May we live by the truth of your word. May we not run from our relationships, but may we seek to do life together as your word has shown us that we are to be and what we are to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.